Fabulous. You may be seated quickly. I'm going to have to talk quickly now. Who knows that, and it's interesting that we're saying goodbye to Alex, which is sad, but that follows something which has been really happy because he's, he's been great uh, company here. And I, I mean, I didn't even know he was a drummer until suddenly he appeared on the worship team. And I thought, wow, yes, let's fire the rest. And I mean, no, no, no. no. Oh, sorry, is my microphone on? Uh, anyway, so I, I'm going to approach uh, uh, my message today with the, the, same, the same thing. I'm going I'm to tell you some funny things to start with, and then I'm going to show you that it's not the funny things we're after, it's the serious things. Um, so just be warned. Um, so we, who's enjoying the book of Daniel so far? Who wasn't here last week and doesn't know anything about the book of Daniel? No, don't put your hands up, it's all right. Um, but we're, we've been going through Daniel chapter 2, and so this week we're going to hit Chapter 3, and 3 is that, that famous story. Who knows that in, in biblical history, we, we attach names to, to certain things. So it's Jonah and the whale, and it's Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, and the fire. Right, and that you might wonder, why, why did I say Abednego? Whereas last week I was saying Abednego, and everybody thought I was saying Abednego. That's why, because I got sick of trying to block my nose and say Abednego, and I was told by somebody uh, in authority that an alternative way of pronouncing it was Abednego, and I thought, well, that's a heck of a lot easier, so I'm going with that. So if you think it's Abednego, you you just translate every time I say Abednego, uh, and we'll all be right. So we're looking at that particular story, and most of us know it because it's a popular childhood one. Uh, I imagine there's a whole generation here who heard it in Veggie Tales with talking vegetables. Uh, so actually, we, I might just show you the, the trailer for this particular thing from Veggie Tales. I'm Rack. I'm Chad. I'm Benny. These three brothers have some tough choices to make. Our parents taught us to stand up for what we believe in. And God wants us to do it right. But doing the right thing isn't always the easy thing. God, get them! Will they escape? Hang on, guys! Or will doing what's right do them in? <laughs> it's a classic veggie tale with lots of laughs and music. My mommy always told me to do what's right. Veggie tales, Rack, Shack, and Benny, including the... <laughs> Rack, Shack, and Benny. And so, I mean, that's, that's great as kids, and I, I remember learning it as a Bible story. I didn't have veggie tales. I had one of those big cardboard-type books with the, the big pictures, and, 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 the, and, and the moral of the story was always something like, you know, uh, follow Jesus uh, with everything you've got, no matter what, uh, at all costs. And that's actually true. That's part of the story. But if, if we grow up thinking that that's what the whole story is about, then it's a, it's a complete tragedy because we actually rob the story of its real power. The story is actually not a child's play at all. It's a dangerous, extremely explosive story. And the issues that are the focus of the story of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, or Rakshak and Benny, are actually really uncomfortable because this story focuses on two things that you're never supposed to bring up in polite conversation. And that's politics and religion, right? So this morning we're going to dismiss the talking vegetables and focus on the uncomfortable truths about human society that Daniel 3 exposes. And to show you that it is a very uncomfortable truth, I just want to show you this image here of a couple of people, one of whom you should recognise instantly. Any guesses? Adolf Hitler, well done. 
He's, uh, but he's not the important guy, funnily enough, in this photo. It's the guy behind him. Any, any clues as to who that might be? No, I didn't think so. I didn't know either. Um, his name is Baldur. And he's not, uh, he's not a software developer. And uh, he didn't invent a game called Baldur's Gate. So that's not the Baldur we're talking about here. Um, he's Baldur von Schirach who was an ideal German youth. He joined and enrolled in the service of the Nazi party when he was just 18. Uh, within eight years, he was the head of the Hitler Youth. And if you don't know much about Hitler Youth, Wikipedia will tell you everything you need to know. But it was, it was basically a social experiment of indoctrinating a whole generation of young people in the ideology of the Nazi government. Baldur was the architect of that, and he was so successful at it that he was elevated to state secretary and he became a close personal advisor of the aforementioned Adolf Hitler. And the reason I've brought him up is that there's a famous interview that he gave the London Times newspaper a number of years before World War II broke out. And the final words of that interview are incredibly tragic and haunted Europe in the following years. And these are the closing words of the interview. But an arousal of faith in the eternal German... Now, I might just stop there because this, this was part of the, the Nazi worldview that the, the, the German perfect man, the Ubermensch, uh, was, the, was the pinnacle of human history. And that, that was their worldview, that they were building an Aryan super race. And so, but an arousal of faith in the eternal German is at the same time an arousal of faith in the eternal God. If we act as true Germans, we act according to the laws of God. Whoever serves our Führer, Adolf Hitler, serves Germany. And whoever serves Germany, serves God. And it feels a little creepy about that. <laughs> and the reason that we cringe inside when we hear it is because we know where these ideas led. Within a decade of him saying these words, millions and millions of people have died at the hands of the Nazis. It was a death on a scale that human history had never seen before even with World War I. Something horrifying had happened here. One particular tribe or nation's values, their culture, their state religion and their ideology had been elevated to heaven. They had actually been given the authority of the gods to do what they were called to do. And uh, they marched forth in the name of that worldview and of themselves and it became their job to subdue any opposition. And they did it very well. And this is the kind of idolising of national identity that leads to the horror and evil that we see in our world. And this is what Daniel 3 is about. It's an expose about human idolatry of their own national identity and what happens when certain tribes and certain nations elevate their way of life, stamp it with divine authority, and then go on to say everybody else needs to recognise this. Now, of course, the Nazis weren't the first people group to do this, and they're certainly not the last. But this is what the story of Daniel is about. And it raises one important question. When God's covenant people find themselves living in a nation or a kingdom that's going down this path, what should they do? And, or if that particular nation that God's people are living in doesn't go quite down this path, but it goes about idolising its national identity in some other way, what are God's people to do? Welcome to Daniel chapter 3. I hope I have your attention. This is not a children's story. Okay. Daniel chapter 3 verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, 
made a gold statue 90 feet tall and nine feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. That's pretty big. It's about the size of an eight-story building, uh, nearly 30 metres high. Um, it's probably gold-plated. I don't think it would have been solid gold. Um, and so, what the, what the? What's this all about? Why has he stuck this, this statue here? Um, is it a Babylonian god? Is it actually Nebuchadnezzar himself? The story doesn't tell us what the statue is. Some scholars think that it wasn't a human figure because uh, 27 metres by 3 metres would make a really tall, skinny person. <laughs> it look funny. But apparently the Babylonians did that sort of thing. So it's possibly a human figure. And so there are two things about this story. In the ancient world, this isn't crazy or unusual. Lots and lots of people, groups and cultures built huge statues uh, to their heroes or to the gods or whatever else they felt like building a statue for. Um, and so that's not particularly unusual. One of the seven wonders of the world was something called the Colossus of Rhodes, um, which was on a, a Greek island, uh, the island of Rhodes, funnily enough, um, off the Aegean, off the coast of Turkey. So here's a, here's a photograph I took of the Colossus um, several thousand years ago. Uh, of course, nobody knows exactly what it looked like because it was torn down and destroyed. But from the descriptions we read of it from ancient literature, we know that it was a heck of a lot bigger than Nebuchadnezzar's statue. So it's not unusual. The second thing is, if you were here last Sunday, what's Daniel chapter 2 all about? It's all about a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And what was the dream about? A statue. And so here again, we're looking. What was the statue, the embodiment? It was the embodiment of, of national power, of kingdoms. And Nebuchadnezzar was the gold head on this statue. So perhaps, you know, he thought, well, this is a good idea. Let's make a statue of gold with my head on it. Um, we don't know, but we do know that this statue, as we're going to read, is the embodiment of the king, of the Babylonian empire, of its gods, of its power, and of its culture. It's the whole deal all merged together in a statue. Uh, so again, you know, in this chapter, we're looking at human kingdoms and their exaltation of their own power in the form of this image of statue. And so that's not bad. I mean, ancient cultures used to do weird things like make big statues embodying their national identity, which is sort of cute, but primitive, right? So aren't we glad we've moved past that in the modern world? Uh, oh, on the other hand, what sits in New York Harbour? Um, yes, this statue is many times bigger than any of the statues I've mentioned before, and it happens to be the national identity of the United States of America. So perhaps we're not as... Uh, Primitive, well, perhaps we were more primitive than we thought we were. Now, I'm not saying that's bad and I'm not saying it's good, but I'm just saying that, hey, we haven't grown up much um, when it comes to symbols of national identity. So anyway, moving on. Verse 2. He sent messages, this is King Nebuchadnezzar, to the high officers, officials, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the statue he'd set up. Notice the list. It's the officers, the officials, the governors, the advisors, the treasurers, the judges. The it's, it's one of these, this happens five times throughout the chapter. Um, and it's just the author's way of saying a ridiculous number of officials were asked to come to this statue opening. Um, and so all these officials came and they stood before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then a herald shouted out, people of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes and other musical instruments, bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Notice there's another list. 
I mean, aren't you glad that Spotify or iTunes wasn't invented back then? Because every time you heard any sort of instrument, you'd have had to bow down to the ground. You can imagine these people with earbuds in, just crawling around on the ground because they couldn't turn their devices off. Um, anyway, that probably didn't happen. I'm pretty sure they didn't have, um, certainly not wireless ones. Um, and so we've got, the second list is again basically the same. So a ridiculous number of musical instruments you had to listen out for and they had to bow to this statue as soon as you heard them. And it goes on to say, anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So, at the sound of the musical instruments, all the people, whatever their race or nation or language, bowed to the ground and worshipped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And so, because who wouldn't, you know, burning furnace, bowing down, yep, I'll pick the bowing, thank you. Um, so, it's, it's really an archetypal representation of the most powerful empire in the ancient world, exalting its own power to the place of the gods. And it's interesting that all the world's being asked to give its allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar, their king, to their gods, to their way of life, to their culture, to everything Babylonian, just by declaring their allegiance to this statue. So think about it. It's not like just going in and singing praise songs and bowing down to an image. They actually have to give it its allegiance, which means they recognise that Babylon defines their reality. Babylon gets to define what's right and wrong. Babylon gets to define success and failure. Babylon is God. And that's what's happening here, and it's all symbolised in this image. See, there's that word again, image. Last week we talked about the fact that often the, the author of Daniel gives these little clues about the fact that he's really interested in images. And he's pointing us to another chapter in the Bible. What was that chapter where images ruled the earth? Chapter 1, the very beginning of the Bible. And so... You know, page one of the Bible sets the stage for the whole storyline of what humans are and what humans are here for. And the first description of the Bible of what humans are here for is to exist as an image, the image of God. And so based out of this story, the reason Israel wasn't to make images of God was because images of God already exist. You're an image of God and you're sitting next to an image of God. We don't need to make any more. The storyline of the Bible is that God has chosen to partner with his image-bearing creatures who rule the world on God's behalf. And what we see in this story is all of a sudden you have humans worshipping this image in the shape of a human, we think, but this image represents human rule. It represents humans creating a nation and an empire and a way of life and a culture and then treating that as if it's God. Sound familiar? Perhaps not. Human history shows us that it's very dangerous when human beings mistake the life that they've created with God himself. So worshipping this image is not a way of being faithful to the creator. It's a way of getting rid of the creator and worshipping our own creations. So look what happens next in, in verse 8. Some of the astrologers went to the king and informed on the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, long live the king. If you're going to talk to the king, it's good idea to preface anything you're going to say with long live the king you issued a decree requiring all people to bow down and worship the gold statue when they hear the sound of the horn the flute the zither the lyre the harp the pipes and other musical instruments that decree also states that those who refuse to obey must be thrown into a blazing furnace but there are some jews shadrach meshach and abednego whom you've put in charge of the province of babylon he's sneaky 
Who are they also in charge of? All the astrologers and the wise men, remember? So they've just got these people who hate their guts because they've been put in charge, and so they're getting their own back by sneakily talking to Nebuchadnezzar. And And they really twist the knife. They pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue you have set up. So they've tied three things together here. They don't honour you, they don't honour your gods, and they don't worship the image which represents your power. And so they've suddenly turned the fact that three Jews aren't participating as a national threat. Because they've basically said they don't conform to this exaltation of the nation's gods and of the nation's power. So they've got to be, they've got to be spies or they've got, to, they've got to be bad for the country. And so let's read on. Nebuchadnezzar thought about this reasonably. No. It says Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and ordered that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego be brought before him. And when they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I have set up? Doesn't even wait for an answer. He says, I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made. When you hear the sound of the musical instruments, notice he can't be bothered listing them. <laughs> but if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? <laughs> Puffing his chest out. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied very politely, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Now that must be the most polite rebellion I have ever heard or seen in the Bible. Um, You might think that they'd stand there and say, you filthy pagan blasphemer. Sorry about that spitting in the front row. But no. It's just, it's just incredibly polite. Notice what they say, even if our God does not deliver us. So first of all, they're saying, look, Nebuchadnezzar, we're not going to have a theological debate. Just, we don't believe you're God. We don't believe that Babylon is God. And we don't believe that your gods represent the one true God. So we're sorry. We're just not going to have that debate right now. We don't need to defend ourselves. And if you want to kill us, that's fine. Uh, Our God might deliver us from the furnace and we we continue living. But our God may not do that. Either way, you're not God and we're not interested in having a debate. Your majesty. I mean, how infuriating is this? He's just met the three nicest, most polite people in the world. He's going to have to kill them. So no wonder he gets a bit upset. um, Because it's it's actually really important how they do this. And we're going to come back to that. Um, But... They are very polite, completely peaceful, but also full of conviction and trust. And whether their God delivers them or not is not the issue here. Just fund- they just fundamentally disagree with who Nebuchadnezzar thinks he is and who he think- what he thinks Babylon is. And so we read on, Nebuchadnezzar was so furious with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage. Now if you read it in the Hebrew, that's another image joke, but I won't go into that. Um, He commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. Not quite sure how they measured that. Um, 
Then he ordered some of the strongest men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So they tied them up and threw them into the furnace, fully dressed in their pants, turbans, robes, and other garments. Why is that important? Well, basically, just he was in such a hurry, he couldn't be bothered sort of stripping them naked and demeaning them or anything like that. He just said, tie them up, chuck them in. And because the king, in his anger, had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames killed the soldiers as they threw the three men in. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tied, fell into the roaring flames. Now, it sounds a bit fairy tale like but if you think about it, this is, this is a picture, an image of what happens when a leader and a nation exalts itself to divine status. First of all, we see delusions of grandeur, which we've seen. But second, we see how human life becomes expendable when a nature exalts and deifies its own power and authority. You see, the king is willing to throw away innocent lives just to destroy the lives of the people who offended him. Now, these soldiers, we don't know their stories. Their families are unknown. But the whole point is, they mean absolutely nothing to Nebuchadnezzar. Reading on, verse 24. Suddenly, Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we tie up three men and throw them in the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did. You can imagine they're not going to say anything else, are they? Just in case they end up in there. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound walking around in the fire unharmed and the fourth looks like a god. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted. So he wasn't that close. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, servants of the most high God. Interesting. Come out. Come here. So Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego stepped out of the fire and then the high officers, officials, governors and advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their head was singed and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. So they could, they could go to work the next day without having to change their clothes. Good, eh? Now here's an interesting point. Did God deliver them from the fire? Well, let me ask you, did they get thrown in the fire? Yeah, so he didn't deliver them from the fire. He delivered them from the furnace afterwards. But in another sense, they weren't actually spared going into the furnace. What happened is when they went in, they discovered that God was with them. And I think that's a lesson for us. How many of our prayers are, please God, don't put me in the fire? Whereas often what happens is that God is with us in the fire and delivers us out of it. But we don't get to escape it because they're the things that change us. So Nebuchadnezzar, drink time. Nebuchadnezzar said, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. So he's decided that the, the God wasn't a God, but an angel. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I make this decree. If any people, whatever their race or nation or language, speak a word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb and their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. Does this sound familiar? I think that's what he offered the uh, astrologers in chapter 2. I don't know what he has against houses. Um, uh, he says, there is no other God who can rescue like this. 
And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to even higher positions in the province of Babylon. Notice that one thing doesn't happen here. The king does not say, oh, good grief, I'm not God. And the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Abednego even I can't get it right, is the true God, and we're all going to worship and give honour to him. He doesn't say that, does he? Because he says, these guys have got something going on, so leave them alone and leave their God alone, otherwise I'm going to kill you. Um, and so that's pretty true to his character, really, isn't it? He still thinks he's in charge after what he's seen. So can you see how this story about an ancient kingdom becomes an image of everything that's wrong with the human race and that this story is an expose on the danger and the horror and the devastating consequences that happen when human kingdoms exalt themselves and when they elevate their national way of life to the place of the gods and stamp it with divine authority. And so it raises the question again, what are God's people to do? How are God's people to respond in a situation like this? Because you see, it's not an ancient problem. Who here is over 20? Congratulations. You were born into a century where more humans were murdered at the hands of other humans on a scale and proportion that has never been known before in human history. Well done. Isn't that, isn't that a really proud thing to... Yep, I was born... A, but how did that happen? It happened for lots of different reasons, but one of the main perpetrators was national ideologies where a nation began to exalt itself to the place of a god, Germany being one case. But there were other cases, there were regimes that banished God, like many of the communist regimes. But in doing so, all they did was elevate themselves to the place of God. So what are God's people to do? Now, based on the response of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, which seemed very simple and even a bit funny, um, was very powerful. But it seems that basically this story is advocating resistance. We are to resist the temptation to equate our nation's values and civic religion and way of life with the one true God of heaven. We're called to resist at all costs to avoid being pulled down the path of compromise. But resist how? What's remarkable about this story is that it doesn't take the form of public protest. They don't march down to the plains of Dura with signs saying, God hates idols, do they? Remember these people? This was not the sort of, I had to change one of the t-shirts, but, um, but <laughs> don't, don't, don't look up that web address, I'm pretty sure it doesn't exist. Uh, but the thing is that despite what they're doing, they're resisting, aren't they? Uh, their resistance begins as non-participation in the national idolatry. They don't even draw attention to themselves. Nebuchadnezzar would never have known that they were disobeying him unless somebody had ratted them out. They weren't even trying to get publicity for what they were doing. And so they've got this knife edge they're sitting on. They didn't all move to the desert notice and start an alternative community. We're the Jews and we're holy and you are all scum and so we're going to withdraw here and uh, we're going to be really holy and just continue to call you scum because you're not worth talking to. Um, we won't even send text messages uh, we don't want anything to do with you. Um, well, they couldn't actually do that because what do they do for a living? They've got government jobs. <laughs> that, that, they actually serve the kingdom of Babylon, making it the best place that they can possibly help make it. So they haven't withdrawn. They're fully engaged. 
but they don't participate in the national idolatry. And this is the, the knife edge of faithfulness that God's people have in exile. They dress like Babylonians, they talk like Babylonians, but they don't participate when it comes to things like this. So if we're Jesus' covenant people, if we're being truly faithful to Jesus, that means, first of all, we're to resist national idolatries. But it doesn't mean a withdrawal and a wholesale, wholesale condemnation of the nation in which we find ourselves. It's that knife edge. And so as Jesus' followers, we find ourselves in different cultures, unfamiliar places, but the fact that we happen to live in a certain nation doesn't define our identity, right? If I'm one of God's people, a part of Jesus' covenant people, then I am first and foremost a follower of Jesus. And so I identify myself by my relationship to God through Jesus. And my mission is to seek God's kingdom, to love God and to love other people. That's how Jesus defines how to follow him. And if I'm truly loving God and I'm truly loving other people, I'm going to seek the best for my community and my nation. But I'm doing it out of a completely different motivation. Not because I think my nation is the best nation. It's because I believe my nation exists under the rule and the authority of God. And that I'm called to contribute to it as one of the image-bearing humans that God has made and as a follower of Jesus Christ. So I want to finish with this thought. There was a story in the Canberra Times on January the 14th this year by a reporter by the name of Michael Bones. And in case people are going to listen to this online, I issue a disclaimer here that this is only an excerpt from that story and that I have abbreviated some sections and removed others for reasons of relevance and time, not because I'm trying to distort the original intent of this message. Having said that, I quote, and this is Michael Bones, I worry that the political left, the climate change, the marriage equality, the pro-abortion people, is too heavily reliant on street protests when there are other less eye-catching but incredibly powerful ways to organise for social change. Every weekend, about one and a half million of our neighbours quietly come together. They gather in suburbs all across the country, black and white, old and young, rich and poor, in a radical political incubator called church. There are more churches in Australia, about 12,400, than schools, only about 9,000. The fundamentalist Pentecostal movement, to which Scott Morrison belongs, has been rapidly growing. Weekly church attendance is sitting somewhere between 4 and 6% of the Australian population. This number matters. Research by Erica Chenoweth, a political scientist at Harvard University, shows that it takes around 3.5% of the population actively participating in a protest to ensure serious political change. The progressive movement could benefit from broadening our definition of what it means to protest. We think it looks like flooding the streets with signs and chants, but we're fighting slogans with slogans. We've excluded everyone who doesn't like big crowds, can't take time off work or lives too far away. And, pardon me. Street protests are inherently unstable, unsustainable, sorry. As the Occupy movement showed, you can't protest forever. What if we directed the big burst of energy from protests into smaller, more frequent gatherings? What if a life lived in protest involved taking time out every weekend to gather and serve your local community? To join together under a more unified story, young and old, to sing songs, read ancient wisdom literature, mediate, serve the poor, 
and develop dense networks with people beyond our immediate interest groups. Because that's what conservative religious organisations are doing. Churches offer belonging and meaning. They have teams whose job is to welcome and befriend new people every weekend. They have, incre <laughs> they have incredible sound systems and talented rock bands that perform every weekend. <laughs> he hasn't been to church, I can see. They make thinking philosophically fun every weekend. They encourage you to explore your life's purpose every weekend. And they'll give you a break from your lovely but exhausting children every weekend. <laughs> In spite of dogma, religious communities offer positive mental health benefits. According to social researcher Hugh Mackay, community service, faith in something larger than oneself, and creative expression are all calm balms to anxiety. So in the wake of the bushfire crisis, while we progressives stoke our anger, vent on social media and get more stressed and depressed, they use ancient practices to care for souls. They make music, share food, read, pray and play, all the while reinforcing their core beliefs. Religious people don't need to bring a city to a standstill to make a point because they're organised. They have a common story that connects them to the same fight, whether they're in Perth or Parramatta, or Adelaide for that matter. They know who they are. Now that's written by an obviously left-wing non-Christian reporter. But the funny, you know what the funny thing about it is? That guy has an attitude so similar to Nebuchadnezzar, it's hilarious. <laughs> you think, he acknowledges that the followers of Jesus have something powerful going on, but instead of saying, well, perhaps I'm not God and my nation and my way in life and culture is not God, he somehow wants to corrupt what he sees to elevate our nation and culture and the way of life to the status of God and then replace him. <laughs> so it appears that our situation is very similar to Rackshack and Benny's. And perhaps we need to take a leaf out of their playbook and state what they stated. O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we thank you for the wisdom and the power of the scriptures. We thank you that they don't say what we want them to say, but you speak to us a word here that reminds us that we are not God. A word that reminds us that you are God and that your holiness and your power is revealed foremost in your love and your sacrificial life, death and resurrection that you did for us. And so Jesus, we declare our allegiance to you as a community. We want to love you and we want to love our neighbours. We want to seek the best for our nation, our city and the community we live in. We give you thanks for the place we live in. And we ask you to give us wisdom as to when we are to resist and give us wisdom as to when we are to serve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Can I ask you all to stand? Before I close, 
this morning, I just want to offer an invitation. I came to know Jesus in my early 30s. And before that, although I hadn't put it in these terms, basically I ran my life like I was God. And looking back on it, living your life with you as God is incredibly tiring and is actually not good for your soul. And I came to realize that when I gave my life to a higher power, to Almighty God, to Jesus Christ, it relieved me of a burden that I was never meant to carry. We do not make ourselves weaker by giving our life to God. We actually make ourselves stronger. Our life becomes more complete. And so can I ask everyone just to bow their heads and close their eyes for a moment. And if you're here this morning and you have never accepted Jesus Christ into your life as your Lord and your Saviour and as your God, you've never taken that mantle off yourself as God and handed it back to Jesus, then I'd love to pray a prayer for you, with you, to invite Him in, to relieve you of that burden, to give Him the rightful place in your life. Or if you're here and you, you know you've, you've done that in the past, but you know that you've actually taken, taken it back, you're living your life like your God, and you know you need to give that back to Him, I'd love to pray that same prayer with you, just to invite Jesus back into your life take off that burden so while no one's looking around every eyes closed every head bowed if that's you this morning and you'd like to pray that prayer with me can you just lift your hand so that I can see it pop it right down again thank you I see that hand anybody else awesome can you all open your eyes and look to the front and can we all pray this prayer can you repeat it after me dear Lord Jesus from this moment on, I declare I am not God and I accept you as my Lord and Saviour to rule my life, to lead me into a new place from this moment on. Dear Jesus, I am now a child of God. I reject the devil all his wiles I thank you that you are now my Lord and Saviour Amen